The moment millions of Americans have been waiting for has come and gone. Ballots have been cast. But while election day has passed, the 2020 election isn't over yet. We discuss what we know so far from the top of the ticket down to local ballot initiatives and what these results mean for climate and energy policy. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and I'm joined by my Democrat and Republican co-hosts. So excited to hear what they have to say. We have Shane Skelton, our Republican. He's a partner with S2C Pacific, a consulting firm, and a former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan. Hey, Shane, how are you feeling today? Feeling good. I was super tired yesterday because I was up all night Tuesday, but got a good night's sleep, and now I'm just sort of trying to process data like everyone else. Great. Then we have our Democrat, Brandon Hurlbut. He's the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. He's a partner at Boundary Stone Partners and a clean tech investor. Brandon, I know you were super involved in this election. What is your gut feeling today? Uh, there's a lot of great news. Uh, there's some, you know, mixed news as well. Uh, but we're going to have President Biden. Uh, that's what we've wanted for the last four years. So I'm very, very enthusiastic about that. Let it be known that Brandon's enthusiasm like never wanes. I watched the election results roll in on election day with you, Brandon, and your wife, Sally, and, and you were not relenting one bit, even as a lot of people thought, you know, the blue wave that they imagined. And I think they saw that it didn't actualize the way that they had imagined. But you kept saying, like, look, this is like 2018. Explain why that is. This is a lot of people voted by mail in this election. And you have to, before you make you know, drastic conclusions, you have to count all the votes. And we're still counting. And um, we're going to be really interested to see the final results, who voted, who didn't. Um, but we know that, you know, Joe Biden will get to 270. And we're likely headed to a major election in Georgia in January to determine control of the Senate. Yeah, potentially two runoff races there for the Senate. And we can touch on that a little later. Uh, just for, you know, a calibration here, as we record this on Thursday uh, morning Pacific time, Biden is poised to win the presidency, although we are still waiting on results from Nevada, where it looks like uh, Biden is, is going to win, but we don't have the official results yet. And possibly looks like he could pull it out in uh, Pennsylvania as well. Uh, I'm not sure about North Carolina. But nonetheless, people are orienting around a Biden presidency. Of course, the Trump administration and, and Trump officials are saying they're going to challenge these. They've thrown out a bunch of lawsuits. So this is not like dead and done from that perspective. But the votes look positive for Biden. Don't forget Georgia, Julia. Sweet Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't looked at the polls yet today. But yeah, does it look like Biden's going to gonna win there? Yep. Votes are coming in from Atlanta. Uh, and it might be a real squeaker, might be a couple thousand vote majority. I wouldn't say yes, Brandon. I'd say it, it, it's tight. So Trump's up about 18,000 votes with, what, 60,000 outstanding. So if Biden gets two thirds of the remaining, then it then it looks like he could, he could squeak by. But I, I view that as a total coin toss at this point. Yeah, that's a coin toss. Well, the Senate is still, as you know, Brandon alluded to there, a, a, uh, it's up in the air. We don't know the results of the Senate races there. But as of this recording, Democrats have officially gained two seats in the Senate and lost one in Alabama. We know that, you know, Democrats did not have the sweep that they saw, specifically in places like Maine, where Senator Susan Collins was quite vulnerable. Uh, Senator Tom Tillis in North Carolina looks like he's going to win, even though, you know, he had an embattled race there. Iowa's Joni Ernst, Republican, hung on also. So when 
we say this wasn't a blue wave. I think that's from, you know, the you know, the 10,000 foot perspective. People were looking at the polls. People really thought Democrats would win the Senate. That's where the, the momentum seemed to be around and win in some state houses. But that didn't happen either. So, Brandon. Well, and Julia, hold on. Let me let me jump on that, too. We haven't talked about the House of Representatives yet. Now, we know for certain that Democrats are going to have a majority, but they were supposed to expand that majority by 15 to 20 seats. Instead, Republicans added somewhere between 10 and 12 seats. So that would also not be you know Republican control by any means. But it but it, it does go against the blue wave narrative. Right. Brandon, what's your initial thought on that and kind of, you know, looking at where we ended up versus where it looked like we were going to go heading into Election Day? I'll say a few things. Joe Biden will win with a larger majority than Donald Trump won. He will win uh, the blue wall states by a larger majority. He'll have a larger electoral college victory, I think, uh, or potential for that, a much larger you know, popular vote victory. Um, so when Republicans narrowly won in 2016, when Trump, you know, narrow, very narrowly won, you didn't see a lot of people saying, well, uh, the Republicans, uh, need to look inwards, uh, and do reflecting. Um, what you saw was Donald Trump thinking about how he was going to use the power he just gained to implement his agenda. Uh, and I encourage Democrats to think that way as well. Uh, we're going to have the presidency. We're going to have um, executive authority again. And there's a lot that we can do with that. And we'll talk about that later. Now, on the other side of that, you know, there were some disappointing um, aspects to this. I think Democrats like me were really hopeful that there would be a larger repudiation of all of the dangerous things that Donald Trump has done over the last four years. I mean, look at the way he's just talking about the the ballot counting right now. That is really dangerous stuff. And so um, it is disappointing, you know, on some of the down ballot as well. Uh, there is a, a larger massive turnout on the Republican side uh, as well. So um, they, they came out. And I think that there's some things we need to think about on Latino vote. Uh, there's some things that we need to figure out there because there were some, uh, you know, negative, uh, surprises there, uh, and on some of the, you know, internal democratic polling, uh, it wasn't just the public polling, uh, that was off in some cases, it was right in some areas, but, uh, obviously wrong in areas like Wisconsin and, uh, some of the other key States, um, Florida, Florida, you know, another North one, Carolina. uh, but that wasn't just public polling. Yeah. Well, North Carolina, they always had pretty close, you know, that I think margin of error, uh, but you did have it wasn't just Democratic, you know, you know, or public polling. It was it was polling on the presidential campaign on local congressional races. And so I think that's a lot of the shock too that Democrats felt because the polling was pretty consistent, not just at the public level, but in some of these congressional campaigns and whatnot. Uh, so that will need to be addressed as well. So just to put it out there on the uh, state house side, we're talking about Democrats failing to flip chambers that they thought they might get in Texas, the Texas House and failed to flip chambers in North Carolina, Iowa, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, while Republicans flipped New Hampshire's legislature. So that's what happened down ballot, which is super interesting to see because people are clearly splitting tickets here and putting Biden at the top and and not voting all the way down the ballot. Yeah, a couple, couple of quick takeaways, too, on this side. I think Brandon's right. When you win the White House, you don't have to do too much introspection. Um, that's usually the, the top prize. Um, if anyone has to do some some looking inside, as you guys just referenced, it's the pollsters. I think I, I've been communicating with you all up front that the Trafalgar Group is you know consistently more accurate. They were uh, the Trump internals are consistently more accurate. They were. I don't know why that is, 
but but that's something that you know the pollsters uh, all around should be looking inward. Another thing I found interesting is when when Mitt Romney got beat in 2012, there was an autopsy. We've talked about it a little bit on on this show. Basically, the Republicans had to look inward and say, "What? Why aren't we able to win?" And one of the primary takeaways of that autopsy was that we just weren't making any inroads with the minority community. And then you know Trump got elected, and obviously people were very concerned about about that. Uh, now the conversations people are having, which are stunning to me, and, and I'm not being funny, I would not have expected this, is in a post-Trump era, how do we keep the minority vote together? Because he made such strong gains compared to Republicans historically. And so that is one key takeaway from this election that I think Republicans are really going to struggle with is we said in 2012, we had to make inroads uh, with minority communities. We didn't. Then came Trump. And then we thought it was over forever. And he expanded Republican turnout uh, in the Hispanic and black communities significantly. So those are things that Republicans are going to try to figure out and deal with the why, the how, and, and how do we keep those voters on the Republican side, at least the ones that, that voted Republican this time. One of the things that I think we need to be careful of, especially on this show, is 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 the nuance, too. I mean, um, when we talk about the Latino vote nationally, it was very good, uh, you know, for Democrats. Uh, it was very good in states like Colorado, uh, Nevada, um, but different in areas like Florida and Texas. So it's not, you can I think it's hard to make sort of sweeping generalizations. Um, definitely. Yeah, these Democrats- are not monoliths. If anything, that's the mistake is, is judging yeah. massive amounts of people as one. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, Joe Biden, we wish we would have done better uh, with Latinos in you know Southwest Texas uh, and certainly Cubans in Miami Dade County. Um, but uh, so I think we need to you know sort of figure that out. But it, but Shane, what I'm curious you know to ask you is, you know, w- with Obama, there were certain constituencies that when he was on the ballot turned out in much greater numbers. And in some cases, it was hard to replicate that uh, after Obama. Uh, do you think that this rural working class vote uh, that turned out in like biblical <laughs> numbers for Trump, uh, will that be able to continue when Trump is not on the ballot? We saw it happen in 2016. Uh, we saw it did not happen as much in 2018. And then when he was on the ballot again uh, this week, it, 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 you know, he was able to turn that out. What do you think is the future with that vote when when? Trump is gone. So I, I've thought a ton about that. The the early sort of answer to the question is I really want to, when this is all done, and you know, I mean weeks from now, when there's nothing to talk about anymore, you're just digging through numbers that have been certified. I want to actually see how Senate and House candidates in those areas uh, performed compared to Trump. In other words, did they outperform him? Did they underperform him? And try to get a sense of why that is, because I think that'll help. The the bigger picture to me, Brandon, and this is advice I'd give to Republicans and Democrats, um, that I just think I didn't fully get when I was sort of learning politics and, and learning policy and understanding government and thinking about our country as a whole. I think those voters um, who have voted, you know, Democrat, they voted Republican, have a big problem with what I view as sort of the majority view from Republicans and Democrats that globalism by and large is good. Free trade has been, you know, a cornerstone of the Republican Party since Reagan, that that's good. Um, you know, deregulation is good. Um all these things, and Republicans have been huge champions of deregulation and free trade. Trump was not. And so the question is, is there a large part of our country that has been really badly hurt by globalization, by unlimited trade, by you know a, a, a sort of reduction in the, the, force, the, the labor force in those areas? And what do Republicans, on my side at least, do about that? I mean, do we learn a lesson from the Trump presidency and say, hey, maybe we've 
paid too much attention to the stock market. Maybe we've paid too much attention to you know our balance of trade. Maybe we've paid too much attention to getting the cheapest possible product into the United States at the at the expense of the American worker. If those problems are addressed on the Republican side, then yeah, Brandon, I think we keep those voters forever. Uh, Democrats were usually the ones who were who were focused on those issues. So I, I'm curious if Republicans post Trump will be as globalist in an economic perspective as they used to be. Um, I want to jump in with a few results just so that our listeners, you know, have them. So let's look at the Senate again. Uh, John Hickenlooper beat Cory Gardner. This is a race where energy and environment was really at the center of it. Gardner uh, had won support from young conservative environmental groups and, and some others. He really touted the passage of his American Outdoors Act, but it wasn't enough. Um, interestingly, John Hickenlooper has had criticism from progressives. They called him Frackenlooper before because of his ties to the energy industry and yet, you know, the Democrats really thought he would do a better job. People in Colorado thought Hickenlooper would do a better job on climate. You know, he has backed a 100% renewable energy economy broadly. So that was just an interesting race there. Shane, like two seconds, what's your thought there on how Cory Gardner uh, did? And, and do you think his, his messaging on energy just, just wasn't enough? Or was that not even the issue at play, really? Yeah, I, I think Brandon nailed this when we did a, a pre-show conference two months ago, three months ago. And he said... It, it, Colorado's not even close. If we're going to look at swing states, don't look at Colorado. That's a blue state and Gardner's going to get crushed. And I didn't I didn't agree with him at the time, but but I think that's the takeaway is that Cory Gardner is young. Uh, people like him. Um, he, he is sort of forward leaning on energy and environmental issues. But I think Colorado is just not going to be a state where Republicans are going to win statewide for a while. And that's a good point, Shane. I mean, we are just we are in the middle of a very massive political realignment um, and states if you remember in 2008, when I was on the Obama campaign, I mean, we won Indiana. We were super close uh, in Missouri and Iowa and uh, Ohio were like true battlegrounds. Uh, that will not be the case, I think, going forward. I mean, I, I, Indiana is clearly red, not even in the ball game. Same with Missouri. Um, I think Ohio is a red state going forward. Uh, Iowa looks to be a red state going forward. Uh, and the the blue wall that we were able to get back this time um, is going to be really close and is trending red uh, going forward. Uh, but uh, the trade-off for that is that the Sun Belt, um, we're seeing uh, Democratic gains. Uh, we may win Georgia. Uh, North Carolina is razor thin, uh, trending in the right way for us. Arizona uh, Biden may win. Um, that state is trending, has been trending. So I think if you look at some of those states in the, in the, in the Sun Belt, they are the Colorados, the Virginias, um, and the New Mexicos of the past, you know, where those states were battlegrounds for a while. And over a couple of cycles, they became reliably blue. I think we're going to see the same with those states. And I do owe Shane dinner for Texas. I am disappointed. Yeah, I'm very excited. That we, you know, I, we didn't win. Um, and uh, but I am excited that Joe Biden will have done better than Hillary. We'll see once all the ballots are counted in Texas, how close it was. Uh, but that state is going the Democratic way. And whether it, it becomes blue in 2024 or 2026, I don't know, uh, but it's going to be blue. Um, and th ultimately, those trade offs will be good for Democrats. The, the map uh, and the danger was that we were going to get caught in that trade off like Hillary did. where We weren't able to go over the top yet in the Sun Belt. And we were, you know, losing in the industrial Midwest. Uh, but I, I do think that 
what the Republicans do going forward, which I'm really excited to talk about Shane with uh, on this episode and the episodes in the future, uh, what Republicans do in the future, I don't know. I'm really curious to see, but it will impact sort of what happens, I think, uh, with that college educated, you know, suburban sort of vote in those suburbs where those numbers are big in those Sunbelt states. Um, and what, will, will they go Democratic fully uh, or will they, you know, sort of stay home with Republicans going forward? And I think that'll depend on what Republicans do. I think, Brandon, we're going to have a lot more informed discussion after the one or two runoffs, depending on how Georgia goes in January, because we will learn in that election whether or not states like Georgia are breaking hard left or whether or not it broke hard against Trump. So I think having just those Senate races without any of the down ballot stuff or the top of the ticket will help us get a sense of where those, you know, sort of suburban counties are and and where the states like Georgia are going. True. But remember, Stacey Abrams almost won that race and many people think she did (laughs) because there was some shenanigans with the votes. Uh, But regardless, it was super close there in 2018 as well. And Beto was close in 2018. Yes, the Democratic pursuit of Texas continues. So for anyone who missed it, Brandon said that Biden would win Texas in this election. Of course, he did not. So Brandon has to buy Shane dinner. Um, I want to take another minute to finish these race results. So I mentioned Hickenlooper, former Colorado governor, beating Senator Cory Gardner. Mark Kelly, astronaut, beat Martha McSally, the Republican. Uh, He he's talked about inserting science back at the center of his policies. You know, he's seen the world from space. And in fact, we talked to his brother, Scott Kelly, his twin brother, who's also an astronaut, about the phenomenon of being in space and understanding environmental issues from that perspective. So I think we can expect Mark Kelly in Arizona to to have a pretty bold uh, climate agenda. That's one race where, where you know for sure candidates matter, right? I mean, McSally was an awful candidate. Kelly was a really good candidate. It looks like Biden is going to win Arizona, but not nearly by the margin that that Kelly won. And Martha McSally is the only person in the history of U.S. Senate, I'm making that up, I don't have those stats, to be a senator with a, while Owen too. So I mean, that, that's just one of those cases where you can say candidates matter. And also, I will say, you know, before we get too far down the road of the episode, I want to say uh, volunteers uh, and organizers matter. What we're seeing is that every vote mattered in this election. You know, it's coming down to the wire in some of these. Georgia, you know, may come down to a couple hundred votes for all we know. Uh, just for all the people in Clean Energy for Biden, uh, all the Biden campaign staff, um, just all the volunteers across the country, uh, thank you for all of your work. Yeah. Well, okay. Keeping us back on track here. I'm going to flip to the House of Representatives so we get this on this show too. So we talked top line Democrats, you know, losing some seats. They thought they would make gains, but in fact, Republicans did. Uh, So let's look at some of the races there. First of all, AOC in New York, she's going back, uh, defeated handily her opponent there. Pennsylvania, let's go to the Republican side. Ryan Fitzpatrick, who is one of the lone supporters of carbon pricing and a carbon tax in Congress, he held on in Pennsylvania, which, as we stand now, looks like it might go Democrat at the top of the ticket. In Michigan's 6th District, longtime Republican incumbent Fred Upton held off a young liberal challenger, uh, John Hoadley. Hoadley had pushed a Green New Deal-style climate policy agenda, but I guess it didn't get... uh, too much backing there, or he as a, as a candidate didn't. Then South Carolina's first district, Nancy Mace, a Republican, beat incumbent Democrat Joe Cunningham. Uh, this was interesting because they actually tried to outdo each other on opposing offshore drillings. This is one of those interesting examples where we're seeing, regardless of party, climate and energy is actually pulling 
really high. People are concerned about climate change. They want clean energy. They're opposed to things like offshore drilling. And in this South Carolina district, the Republican actually run, ran on opposing offshore drilling, attended Trump's event where he you know, expanded an offshore drilling moratorium off the eastern Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. So interesting to see some Republicans there with some climate um, and energy, clean energy backgrounds uh, do well. Switching to the progressive side of the ledger, several Green New Deal-backed candidates succeeded in many down-ballot races, and this is via Lead Locally, a 501c4 organization. Uh, some of these candidates were also backed by the Sunrise Movement, uh, you know, the youth climate movement. Um, so just some examples here. We had uh, progressive veteran Harold Hope win in New Mexico, which is a step in getting New Mexico's state Senate to be more progressive and, and act on climate. Also in Minnesota, Democrat Lindsey Port is ahead of longtime incumbent Senator Dan Hall. Uh, this is the kind of race that would be necessary for Democrats to win control of the Minnesota State Senate. And, you know, as we noted in previous episodes, including with Caroline Spears at Climate Cabinet, the reason these down ballot races are so important is because these states control energy policy and climate policy in a really big way. So that's why it's important to, to look at how these uh, more progressive candidates did so just a couple more, uh, Ricky Huerto and DeAndrea Salvador flipped North Carolina seats and they'll be, they're being heralded as strong progressive voices in the state legislature for climate justice. Here in Los Angeles, Holly Mitchell is currently leading in her race for LA uh, County Supervisor and she's an environmental justice champion, you know, being celebrated as someone who would hold the oil industry accountable for local pollution. Another one highlighted by Bill McKibben, who is, you know, a famed environmentalist and founder of 350.org, is Maine State Senator Chloe Maxman. She is a true climate champ, according to Bill McKibben. So that is someone to watch for in Maine. So, yeah, those are just a smattering of the results. But interestingly here, you know, you see uh, candidates who ran on progressive Green New Deal style platforms doing quite well down ballot even if, you know, there wasn't a sort of national movement uh, around that. Brandon, any initial thoughts on that and how the Green New Deal kind of did in this election? No, I'm excited about those results. Um, I don't know what it'll mean uh, in the Congress, uh, but I think a, also a general trend is that uh, the blue areas of the country are getting bluer and the red areas of the country are getting redder. Uh, and that's where I'm really interested to talk to Shane and and others about what is that going to mean for for our politics going forward. All right, a couple more races I want to touch on here in Arizona. We talked about the Senate race, but looking lo more locally, uh, it looks like uh, two Republicans and one Democrat are on, t on, on track to take over uh, the Arizona Corporation Commission or win those races this year. That could actually be a problem. Arizona recently advanced a proposal to get to 100% uh, clean energy through the Corporation Commission, but that still has to be finalized. And so the results of this election could actually set that off track with two Republicans taking seats there. Now, to be clear, two Republicans who are currently on the commission voted in favor of the new clean energy standard. So it is a bipartisan proposal. It's just that these two new commissioners who look poised to take uh, take to the commission are opposed or have expressed opposition in the past to government mandates. Then in Texas, quickly, it looks like Republicans have maintained control of the Texas Railroad Commission, which oversees utility policy and regulates oil and gas. Michael Bloomberg actually got involved in that race, donating money there to try and unseat 
one of the Republicans, but it looks like that failed. And so no big shakeups on the Texas Railroad Commission this time around. The last set of results I want to touch on are some key ballot initiatives that have implications for climate and energy. So first is Nevada's 50% renewable portfolio standard by 2030. That passed. It's a constitutional amendment, which is now passed for the second time, making it official in the state of Nevada. So Again, this will require the state to get at least half of its electricity from renewable sources by 2030. And this is an amazing one because I've been actually covering this issue in Nevada for years. It stems way back, you know, it goes way back to solar net metering battles that started in 2016, I believe, and evolved from there, uh, you know, resulting in some some controversy, protests, changes at the Utility Regulatory Commission, and now ultimately resulting in this constitutional amendment to really boost renewable energy in the state of Nevada. So that's a fascinating uh, development there with a, with a long history uh, that I had the opportunity to cover. Another one, voters have approved a ballot measure in Columbus, Ohio, enabling the city to negotiate a cleaner energy supply. It's an opt-out green energy electricity aggregation plan that promises to supply 100% of the city's power needs with renewable energy by 2023. So with voter approval, the city's selected vendor, AEP Energy, can begin working out how to supply Ohio's largest city with power from all new wind and solar farms. Going south to Louisiana, voters there have rejected a constitutional amendment that would have extended huge tax breaks to the oil and petrochemical industries. In Alaska, though, a measure to increase oil and gas taxes looks like it will fail. Over to Colorado, Boulder voters are narrowly supporting a measure to enter into a new franchise agreement with XL Energy, which would end the city's effort to establish a municipal utility. And then in Denver, a measure to expand a sales tax to support clean energy appears likely to pass. And finally, in New Mexico, voters will no longer elect members of the state's Public Regulation Commission after this year. The amendment that passed there would shrink the five-member commission that was previously elected by voters to three members and establish a new nomination committee that would give nominees to the governor who would then appoint three members to the Public Regulation Commission. Not exactly sure how that'll play out there, but under the current makeup with a Democratic governor, this could be positive for implementing her uh, clean energy agenda faster. And with that, we're going to take a moment and bring in a guest and talk more about what a Biden-controlled White House and a Republican-controlled Senate could look like on a number of energy and, and climate issues. So let's turn to that now. So as we record this episode right now, uh, it doesn't look like the Democrats swept the Senate the way that they might have hoped for, but there are two outstanding races in the state of Georgia, and they could both go to runoffs. And if that happens, you know, Democrat control of the Senate is still in place. So we want to note that. But right now, you know, if people are reading the tea leaves, it looks like that could be a, a tough win for Democrats. So with us to discuss this is Glenn Schwartz, Director of Energy Policy at Rapidan Energy. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, how are you feeling today? Oh, uh, sleep deprived, but otherwise uh, motivated and, and, and running on pure adrenaline at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I know that Rapidan put out a memo right as the uh, you know election results were coming out, and I think you were looking at the scenario of a Democratic White House and a Republican-controlled Senate. Can you just give us the top lines of what you're seeing in that scenario? Yeah, sure. And and as you mentioned, this this remains to be seen, and 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 a big sort of X factor is you know how 
willing would McConnell be to deal? Is is he is he going to see the Joe Biden that that he spent all those years uh, in 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 the Senate with together, or is he going to see another Democratic president that whose agenda uh, you know needs to be halted at, at every turn? Um, <laughs> what it, are the odds of the first one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it probably will be somewhere in the middle. But you know, there's a lot of big ticket items that. Democrats were hoping to do that and that have to be done legislatively that now are uh, certainly a much harder road, if not non-starters entirely. And stuff we were looking at includes, um, you know, Biden was very clear as recently as two weeks ago, he, he promised to repeal a, a slew of these fossil fuel friendly uh, tax incentives, things like in intangible drilling costs, uh, percentage depletion and the like. Uh, it would be very tough to get those through the Senate now. Um, he had talked about a $2 trillion in green spending. That's going to be a really tough road to hoe. Uh, it's possible he could get some of those um, provisions into some sort of COVID stimulus bill. But that price, and uh, I, I think we could probably envision McConnell referring to it as a, you know, a progressive environmental wish list of some kind and, and, and maybe be a tough road to hoe for that. Um, yeah, as far as other things, uh, the JCPOA, he, we still think Biden's going to return to that. Um, that's the Iran nuclear deal. Um, we, we, th we envision the, uh, the, the U.S. to return to that. Um, that. That may be beyond the scope of what you're asking for here because it's more of a geopolitical issue. But um. No, it's interesting. I mean, on geopolitics, I mean, Biden can rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, right? Which, you know, coincidentally, the U.S. just formally withdrew from the day after the election on November 4th. So uh, that's something we could see. Yeah, that's a no brainer. And that's outside Congress. That's something he can do with the stroke of a pen and then wait 30 days, essentially. Um, you know, it's it remains to be seen how warmly he'll be received by uh, the the greater environmental community in, in the EU and the like, as this is now, you know, the second time that we've joined a, a pact only to have our next president pull us out. But uh, certainly, I think a lot of them would be eager to see uh, U.S. leadership on climate issues return to the stage here. Um, and, and that's absolutely something that can come without Congress, though, you know, it remains to be seen whether they might insist on uh, ratification in Congress. So the next president can't pull us out of it. And, uh, you know, that that is a tough vote uh, now with uh, with Republicans holding the Senate. If they hold the Senate. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, for, for what it's worth, that 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 probably remains likely the likely outcome, at least in our view. But but I think there's lots of ways uh, things could go well for for Democrats in Georgia uh, in January. Yeah. So we talked a little about the fossil fuel side of it. What about on clean energy? What are you seeing in terms of like renewable energy tax credits? Could something like that happen? Are you looking at you know what the agencies could do you know outside of Congress? What do you see on the green side of the ledger? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, things like the production tax credit, that that is a congressional legislative thing that, that has to go through Congress. I think there's room for discussion there. I mean, you know, the, the whole concept of horse trading on the PTC and the investment tax credit, you know, it's solar brother there. You know, that that's part of negotiations that we've seen in the past. An extension of the PTC and ITC were negotiated in 2015 as part of Obama's removal of the crude export ban. Um, you know, an extension there, perhaps in exchange for maybe more support for carbon capture and sequestration, which is an environmental initiative that's, you know, favored by by industry and Republicans. You know, there, there's probably room to get something like that through EV tax credits. I think there's probably room for that as well. That's not really a big controversial issue. Um, but, you know, the, the vast majority of what Biden's climate agenda is can be done 
either through executive authority, you know, things like we talked about Paris, the <laughs> stroke of a pen, or, you know, regulation. So, you know, just to give you a, a brief example, if you promise to, uh, you know, block leases and permits on federal land, that's not even a stroke of a pen. That's, you know, administrative discretion. Same deal with blocking development in the Arctic. You're talking about oil and gas specifically, not renewables, just to clarify. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, on federal lands, it, it's absolutely the, the way the law is written. It's discretionary, both both how much uh, land that needs to be offered up and, and what they choose to do with it. And there's tons of environmental reviews as well. So, um, you know, there's definitely room for him to favor renewables at the expense of drilling. And we expect that he would. And that happens within, you know, environmental justice issues as well. What does the oil industry make of that? Are you hearing them, you know, be concerned about a Biden presidency or they kind of saw this coming? They know how to maneuver here. Uh, I think both is the angle. I mean, we saw a rush of uh, applications for leases in the past few months under Trump, hoping that, you know, if they can get them in under the wire, that uh, perhaps Biden won't disturb those leases legally. It's way easier for him to block new leases than it is for him to invalidate existing leases. We think it's, it's uh, you know, a court would probably um, overturn any effort to, for a widespread ban on existing leases. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of room once you get the lease that's not the, uh, the the permit to drill. You know, there's nine separate reviews that are required from one to the, to the to the end to getting drills in the ground, and including environmental impact statement and another, uh, you know, uh, biological uh, opinion and the like. And uh, so once they get, even if they get these leases in under Trump, uh, it may file, fall to the Biden administration to conduct these reviews, and they may find some of these. Uh, they either need far more environmental mitigation measures, or they could deny them entirely. Brandon, thoughts here? Yeah, I just want to add, you know, Julia, first of all, who knows, we may end up winning the Senate after all. But let's just say uh, that the Democrats don't. Uh, for the last four years, while the Democrats have not had the White House or the Senate, I, the number of position papers on policy to use executive authority to advance uh, an, a clean energy and climate agenda there are volumes and volumes of binders from all of the, you know, uh, NGO groups. Uh, Clean Energy for Biden came up with forty different position papers uh, on these issues of how binders to use executive full of policies that will, yeah, <laughs> that will be submitting um, on the Biden, you know, uh, policy team for the campaign. Uh, you know, there was lots of committees. I was on one of them. Um, you know, we were we were instructed to think through. Uh, how to use executive branch, you know, authorities to advance uh, his agenda. Um, and so there's day one plans, there's day 100 plans. So it's not like people would show up in a Biden administration and say, okay, how do we do this? Uh, there are lots of ideas on how, how to use that authority to advance the agenda. And many of those people will be people that worked in the Obama administration. And if you remember in 2010, we lost the Congress. And so in those last you know, six years of, of the Obama administration, people had to get really good about thinking through how to use executive power to advance the agenda. And many of those people will be in the Biden administration. So um, I, I don't want Democrats to feel anxious out there. There's going to be uh, lots of ways for, for Biden to advance a clean energy and climate agenda, even if we don't have the Senate. Yeah, reversing the Trump administration's roughly 100 environmental rollbacks is something the Biden administration could do. Just putting 
climate scientists uh, at the White House and in the agencies would surely have a trickle down effect. And and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So yeah, take your point there. Although we have also talked about in previous episodes how a conservative leaning Supreme Court could create problems for a Biden administration by, you know, undermining executive authority. Sure. But let me give you an example. The DOE sitting on $40 billion in the loan program, like $40 billion sitting there that could be spent. Right. So uh, you don't have to use Congress or the courts for any of that. That's true, but I, I, I sorry to interrupt. I'd add in when you're looking at the Supreme Court, you're looking at regulatory authority. Some of the big sweeping items, especially those we saw under the Obama administration, like like a clean power plan. Anything resembling the clean power plan is not going to sniff through this the Supreme Court. They would probably reject it out of hand. Uh, they are going to look at things much more narrowly. Uh, this concept of Chevron deference is certainly not on strong ground, even though it's been uh, jurisprudence for for uh, decades now. Um, so, you know, if some of these bigger ticket regulations are going to survive judicial review, they may need to be either less aggressive or more creative in how they hew closely to existing uh, statutory law under the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act and the like. So do you think something like um, fuel economy standards, if they tried to, you know, the Trump administration has rolled those back and has talked about removing California's waiver. So presumably the California waiver would be safe to set its own emission standards for cars. But if the if the Biden administration tried to put more stringent ones in, is that something that could end up before the court and, and have a unfavorable outcome? It could. I would be surprised. You know, the the authorizing law and, and basically if he reverts to Obama era standards through 2025, there was nothing legally controversial about those standards for the most part. You know, that that law was issued uh, under NHTSA and, and, and the uh, 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 Energy and Environmental Security Act of 2007. So th- there's nothing that controversial about uh, that law. I actually think the fuel economy and the zero emission vehicle standards will be among the safest of his rollbacks. But things like BLM methane standards, which had a rough go of things uh, towards the end of the Obama presidency, and certainly, as I mentioned, the Clean Power Plan, which was on life support, uh, seem like they could be very dicey. Shane, what about, you know, we're assuming that every single Republican senator would vote in lockstep with McConnell at all times. What about on some clean energy legislation? Could a Murkowski or Susan Collins, you know, peel off and join in with 48 Democrats. I think there's plenty of different areas where there could be a good contingency of Republicans on clean energy uh, policy that vote with Democrats. But keep in mind that assuming uh, Republicans keep the Senate, and I am holding that assumption firmly, though, Brandon, I know you're not, but assuming that's the case, McConnell controls the floor. So if there's a big energy package that McConnell lets move, then I think you could see some horse trading because I do think there are five to 15 uh, Republican senators who are, are serious about um, clean energy. I think Tom Tillis coming back is going to be good in that regard. I think um, we'll see some good stuff from Dave Braun. Uh, so I, I think there's room for negotiation. Susan Collins, for sure. I'm not arguing the point you're making at all, Brandon. I'm arguing what can be put on the floor. But can I jump in here to say, you know, reporting I've heard is that the next senators that go up for re-election will potentially be primaried if they are seen doing anything that aligns with a Nancy Pelosi Biden agenda. It is not in their interest to work with them on virtually anything. It's certainly not something that really maybe plays as a as a Democrat, you know, top issue. So I don't know. My my everything I'm hearing is that expect way more blocking and 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 slow movement. That's true, but but there are some people you got to remember. There are some politicians on both sides of the aisle who actually care about their constituents and their states and the industries in there. And I, I, I that shouldn't even be something that I have to remind folks of. There are some people who want to help 
their constituents. And there are certain clean energy policies that are very good for red states. Shane, on just something basic like confirmations, um, you know, approving uh, a secretary of, of, of DOE or EPA administrator, do you think that if Biden put forward somebody uh, like a Susan Collins or a Murkowski would just uh, obstruct? Or do you think that they'll sort of give the normal deference you give to a president to pick their team unless the person is, you know, totally unqualified or uh, something of that sort? I would be stunned. And I mean this sincerely. I almost want to punt this to Glenn just because I don't want to have egg on my face. I, I would be stunned, stunned. And I mean this sincerely. If um, the Senate, you know, whether it's 52, 48, 51, 49 or 50, 50, obviously you don't have to worry about it. But um, I'd be stunned if they hold up a, a Biden appointees. I think one thing that most people who work in this space agree on is that, you know, elections have consequences. Obviously, there's some some room to, to stop people from doing things you don't like them to do through the legislative process. But if you didn't get people like Susan Collins and I would say 10 others to confirm a Biden cabinet, I would honestly be stunned. And, and I'll and I'll I'll eat this recording. I'll gladly, you know, have egg on my face if I'm wrong. But no, presidents absolutely are entitled to appoint their cabinets. And I, and I don't anticipate that being an issue. So, Shane, one thing I want to ask you, because we talked about it offline, is that you actually think a divided government is better. Um, I won't put the words in your mouth, but I'm curious to know why you think that is, and specifically with a climate energy lens. Because I think people who wanted to see action on this were really hoping that something like a $2 trillion Biden plan would happen, and that does not look possible if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate. So why do you feel like this is actually a good way uh, to have the country go? Yeah, I think divided government's always better. And I, and I am a partisan, I'll admit that. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I always want everything to go my way. I think historically speaking, we see two really positive things with divided government. Um, one is that people tend to compromise more. And all we need to do is look back to the vote counts on judicial nominees. I'm not even talking about the Supreme Court, but you can do that. But just Article Three judges, federal judges, um, these used to pass 90 to 10. And it didn't matter who was the president. And it didn't matter who was in charge of the Senate. People just sort of understood that this was part of the role of government. Once Harry Reid dropped that threshold, the 50, you start seeing everything near 50. When people feel like they're being bullied, they respond in kind. And so I do think divided government's good in that way. I also think divided government leads to policies that withstand elections. People forget because they've been looking forward to this for a while that there's a presidential election every four years and there are you know congressional elections every two years. It's of course the same at the state level as well in, in some way, shape or form. And so anger and division doesn't bode well for consistent policymaking. Now, I understand in the climate space, what a lot of people will say is that there haven't been bipartisan efforts. And that's true. Um, I think that you tend to see, you know, social policy be a little bit more hostile um, when you have, you know, one sided government. But climate policy is becoming more mainstream. I think, you know, a lot of us understand that and believe that, which is why we do this podcast. And I just think there's a better chance, even if it's more incremental uh, to enact climate policy, when all sides are involved, you need to garner, you know, a good solid majority vote. And then even more importantly to me, when you finally achieve your objective, you don't have to worry about it being repealed in two years. This is what we've seen with, with the regulatory state. No matter what one administration does, the next one undoes it. That does not give businesses certainty. It does not lead to the deployment of capital we need to decarbonize our economy. And I don't think it, it, it drives confidence of voters or investors. Two, two last points I'll make on this. Um, one is that Americans want divided government. How do we know that? Look at the vote counts. It's Thursday. We don't know who won. I think we all think we know who won, but we should know by now in a, in a, in a country that's so, so divided, but the country's not that divided. If you look at the popular vote, uh, Joe Biden will probably win by about 3 million votes. 
If you go down More than ballot, that, actually. I mean, he's already up 3.5, but yeah. Oh, is that what it is now? It was like 2.8 when we got on, I think. Um, but uh, so, you know, he's, he's going to win. But you're talking about a country of, of nearly half a billion people. And then if you go away from the presidential, because that can be a personality contest, and you just start totaling every vote cast for the U.S. Senate across all 50 states, it's going to be about 50-50. So my point is that we are a country that has differing uh, views, that has diversity of views. And if you try to steamroll 50% of the country, that's not going to go well. And, and then sort of one just last practical point, I actually think Joe Biden will have a better opportunity to be president. I think that if he had control of the Senate and the House, even if only by one vote, he'd be pressured to do a lot of things that maybe are not the things that he got into politics for, maybe are not the reasons that he ran for the White House. I think they'd be fighting about are you, do you have a cabinet that's progressive enough? Are you being um, as forceful as you should be with your, you know, whatever immigration policy, your tax policy, your your whatever policy? And so I think, you know, being able to tell his own base, I'm doing everything I can, everything that I ran on, but I do have to negotiate with the Senate. I actually think gives him a little more breathing room to govern. But what well. about things like the Senate Climate Solutions Caucus? You know, people had hopes that this group would come up with solutions, but they really weren't all that active. And, and this is relevant because Lindsey Graham is a Republican on it. He won re-election. Susan Collins, uh, she won re-election on the Republican side. Um, so these are members, though, that people have not seen follow through from, even if there's some ideas floating around. So like, what gives you hope that things would be different now, even on the incremental stuff? On the incremental stuff, I, I think it's going to be easy. Um, I, I think people like Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, uh, Tom Tillis, uh, I, I could list more, have shown a, a willingness in the past to work on these things. I do think mentality is different when you feel like you're in power and you know what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do and what you're willing to trade. But people have to remember that compromise is important. So if Biden had the Senate and the House, could he ram through whatever he wanted? Probably. You might have a hard time bringing along some of your fellow Democrats because you can only afford to lose one, but probably. And then, you know, what's going to happen in the 2022 election? What's going to happen after that? How stable are we? Now we have an opportunity to horse trade. What does a Republican Senate want? It doesn't have to be in the climate or environment space, by the way. What do they want? What does the Democratic left want? Okay, well, let's just compromise and get it all. And we've seen that done in the past. I mean, I did that. I was part of that personally with the Murray Ryan negotiations. That wasn't a hostile negotiation. No one was angry. We, we all made a list of what we wanted to do, basically created a Venn diagram, figured out what we both thought was reasonable, and then we just horse traded the rest. That's how policymaking is supposed to work. I know people think it's swampy or whatever, but representatives are there to represent their states and those states' interests. And so horse trading is part of that. I think from a climate activist perspective, the downside is that Democrat moderates like uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, you know, their votes will be critical. So something that passes through Congress would have to get signed off from someone, you know, like Joe Manchin in a coal state. So that's the negative read. On the plus side, I've seen people saying, look, this was one of the first elections, if not actually the first election in which climate change actually played a huge role in mobilizing voters. And again, Vox polling showed that across the board, people really uh, were concerned about the effects of climate change and wanted government to increase spending on green and renewable energy. So that's something that seems to be transcending this partisan moment which is amazing to see, just like the Overton window has shifted. And, and Justin Gway, who's at the Sunrise uh, Project, was saying, you know, this is a winning issue. And it creates really a climate mandate here. The fact that so many uh, candidates won on a, on a platform that included climate change. And that includes some Republicans. I think that's right. And I guess one last point I'd want to drill down on, because you raised uh, the Joe Manchin issue, and I think you were wise to do that. Um, 
That's a perfect example of where divided government is so good. Let's say that both Georgia Senate seats go to Democrats, just for the sake of this discussion. So you have exactly 50 Democratic senators, plus you would have uh, the tie-breaking vote in, in the vice president. I'm not convinced that you get all 50. I'm not convinced that if it's something that's super progressive, um, that Joe Manchin does vote for that. Honestly, I'm not. So I, I think you still might not have a governing majority. However, if you get eight or nine Republicans to vote for it too, Joe Manchin probably feels a heck of a lot more comfortable voting for it. So I think even on the Democratic side, you might be able to move things that you might not be able to get every single member of your party to choke on, um, but you can if there's some bipartisan support. Glenn, what do you think the top items are that you know we could see bipartisan action on in the Senate on climate and energy? What would be the top of your ticket there? Of bipartisan? Uh, I think there's room for stimulus uh, a, a, a stimulus bill for COVID that is also cloaked as an infrastructure bill uh, that also has some, some a lot of green provisions in it. I think there's understanding. I, th I think we will see uh, McConnell's Senate revert to more of a budgetary hawkish position than we've seen the past four years. But that said, I think they're aware that a, a stimulus of some kind is needed. And I think frequently, although, you know, right now at the moment, they're being pretty coy with uh, with the amount of stimulus they're willing to do. There's once there's enough money out there um, and we're clear of an election, I think there's enough room for people to get what they need out of these kinds of uh, bills. And uh, I, th I think there's room there. And that's something that could move relatively quickly as um, we may be digging out of, you know, the, the pandemic related economic issues for for uh, for a while. Yeah. I mean, I've been hearing R&D spending on energy technologies to help balance, you know, an increasingly renewable powered grid. That could be something with bipartisan traction, uh, increasing transmission capacity, carbon capture, sequestration uh, incentives, possibly small modular nuclear reactors getting some support. Um, but we should note we've had previous guests on who said that those industries like carbon capture and small nukes, they really need like an infusion of, of policy uh support and really policy stability so that those industries can get off the ground. I don't know if we'll, we'll see that or if it'll be sort of bits and bobs here and there that keep them uh, going. Obviously, Biden's $2 trillion climate plan, as originally conceived, that would not go through with a Republican Senate. But I take the point that there are uh, action areas here. Um, and finally, Biden, uh, Brandon mentioned um, personnel and, you know, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is another area to watch. Uh, Michael Wara at Stanford pointed this out. Chairman Chatterjee, uh, his term expires uh, in this coming June. And so there's an opportunity to uh, appoint several more commissioners. I think uh, there are currently only three sitting ones. So there's several more that could be added uh, by a Biden administration. And these guys oversee competitive forces um, in electric power markets. And we saw order 2222 that Brandon talked about last um, episode being a huge game changer. It was just wild. Aggregating distributed clean energy resources. So that is something that FERC overseas and we could see a lot more movement on um, inserting, you know, carbon pricing into these markets. So watch, watch for FERC, a wonky area, but another place where personnel would really, you know, drive policy. And since I mentioned that, Brandon, we've had comments from the Twitter sphere. People really want to know who else you see in a Biden administration. Do you have any more insights there on, on who could take leading <laughs> roles? I will say that the Biden transition team operate a little bit differently than the Hillary uh, team, where some of that stuff came out before Election Day. Uh, and I think they took a different approach, uh, which is they really want to keep that uh, locked up until uh, after it's official. And so 
I think if we see uh, Biden declared the winner tomorrow morning, I think we'll see things move very quickly on the transition side. Uh, I think there'll be lots of people who worked for me, honestly, <laughs> uh, in the Obama, in the Obama. Obama administration who will be take prominent roles. Uh, I feel like one of the coaches, you know, they have like the coaching tree in the, in the NFL, all the people that went, you know, worked for them, they go on and become head coaches on their own and win Super Bowls. Uh, very proud of, of some of the people uh, I worked with and I'm excited about uh, them going into the administration. So uh, we'll see. But the way it works is uh, you have sort of three, you know, buckets in the energy and climate area. There'll be a policy team. They'll start thinking about, you know, early, you know, legislation and uh, administrative actions. You'll have an agency review team. They'll go into the EPA, the DOE, the Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture, uh, interview career staff, learn about what's been going on the last couple of years, start thinking about things that could be done immediately uh, in a Biden administration. And then you'll have a personnel team uh, and they'll be thinking about, you know, the overall 2000 political appointees uh, across the U.S. government. Uh, and the ones that, you know, will be that they'll have to, you know, fill in the energy and climate area. That's the team I was on in 2008 uh, for the for the Obama transition team. And so I know there's a lot of great uh, qualified people that want to go serve. And um, it's going to be exciting to see how that all unfolds. Well, message from the Twitter sphere. Uh, I'm just going to bring it in here for fun and things to chew on for our wonky uh, audience members here. I've heard Obama alum Ali uh, Zaidi, who's currently the New York uh, cha- uh, New York's chair of climate policy uh, and finance uh, under Governor Cuomo. And we have Biden's climate advisor, Kerry Dugan, who could end up with a prominent position. Maggie Thomas at Evergreen Action, formerly one of the architects of Jay Inslee's climate plan. That could be another name we hear more of. So more to come on that. Take your point, Brandon, it's early days. But and that tweet was from Emily, who used to sit yeah, Emily uh, five feet from my office at the DOE next to Ali, who sat next to her uh, and Gary Dugan. Uh, we worked, you know, she was in EERE and then went over to the VP's office. Uh, so, yes, there's going to be a lot of great DOE alumni. Um, I think that will be considered. Yes. Well, we have just a couple minutes left, so we're going to end with our segment, Say Something Nice. And Glenn, this is a bit of a curveball for you, but we do end every show with something, you know, that each political party member finds redeeming about the opposing party. Of course, this is an incredibly highly charged moment, but usually we can uh, find some room uh, for common ground. I think I'm going to jump in here and just say the fact that there was a mostly peaceful election is great. There were literally outside foreign election watchers in the country monitoring this. And it seems like, you know, democracy held up in America, which I know is like a low bar, but I think people were concerned that the the tensions could rise so much that it would not go so well. So let that be a win for for all sides here. Uh, Shane, do you have a thought? I do. And I want to agree with you, by the way, because boarding up windows prior to an election is not something that should happen in the U.S. And I'm glad that it was unnecessary and preventative and that that's not where we ended up. Um, My say something nice, and I have to be very, very careful here, um, is about uh, candidate, I should say, Joe Biden, Um, not not for winning, um, because that's not sort of how I roll, but uh, for the way he handled election night and everything since then. uh, This is America. And in America, we fight hard to win. And then when we lose, uh, we lose. And when we win, we win. And I think that there were plenty of opportunities uh, to escalate the situation I think the language that uh, candidate Biden used about, you know, confident that he's going to win, looking forward to the results, counting votes, 
you know, not declaring victory, not agitating sort of outside forces, but just remaining calm, uh, confident, but not um, arrogant. And, 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 and I just I appreciated sort of the, the demeanor, if I can if I can use that word, I think that's the proper one that, that he carried himself with throughout the last two days. Yeah, Biden's talked about turning down the temperature, which I think is a uh, welcome statement in this heated moment. And uh, hey, maybe it'll turn into a climate commitment, too. <laughs> Glenn, I'll go to you if you have one. Uh, anything you could say that's sort of like redeeming of one of the other political parties or both? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Rapid and Energy Group prides ourselves as, as, as you know, having our own biases, but but never having uh, uh, that that bias uh, lead into any of our analysis. So we are we are officially nonpartisan. So in that vein, actually, I would say how happy I am that it appears as though the Supreme Court will not have decided or need to decide this election. There was a lot of pearl clutching and dropped monocles over whether or not the Supreme Court we'd see a Bush v. Gore sequel. Um, it appears, at least the way the count is going, that that will not be necessary. Uh, the lawsuits that have been filed to date don't look like they're going to rise to that level. And, uh, you know, and depending on how the count goes, we might even see uh, ballot issues in Pennsylvania, which which got people a lot of uh, very nervous because it was the subject of not one, not two, but now three appeals to the Supreme Court become moot if uh, if Biden is able to secure not just Nevada, but either Arizona or Georgia. Um, so, yeah, I'm 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 also happy with the way the Supreme Court handled the pre-election issues. I think we expected them to be conservative and they were, but they were based on clear legal principle that I don't think anyone would really find to be too outrageous in any way. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, happy for the integrity of the court that seems to be maintained and the fact that voters rather than justices will, will decide this election. My say something nice is to all of the Republican poll workers who executed, uh, their duty faithfully. Uh, I think it was really inspiring to see in some of the footage on the news, you know, a democratic poll observer, Republican poll observer together counting the ballots. Uh, as Joe Biden said, you know, the American people are deciding who the winner of this election is. And that's, you know, Republican uh, poll workers sitting next to, you know, a Democratic one and, um, you know, carrying out the election the way it should be. Uh, so I'm, I'm very pleased to see that there wasn't uh, disruptions uh, in that and that people uh, showed up and they volunteered and they uh, did it on behalf of the American people and put their partisanship aside, counted the votes the way they were supposed to be counted. Great. Well, we will leave it there for now. Thank you guys so much for taking part uh, in this election review. Lots, lots more to unpack over time, but I think this is a good snapshot of where we stand today. Thanks so much to our listeners. I know that you're probably overwhelmed with information at this point, but we really appreciate you taking the time to also join us and make us part of your media diet. So thanks for that. We will be back next week. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts and tweet at us at poly underscore climate if you have some feedback. Thanks again. Stay safe. Stay sane. Until soon.